Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. In recent years, it has become clear that there is a war going on, a war on the West. This is the opening line to a new book describing the ongoing culture wars as an attack on Western civilization. To discuss his new book, The War on the West, Douglas Murray joins me now. Thank you so much, Douglas, for joining us. What is The War on the West? First of all, it's a great pleasure to be with you. The War on the West is a culmination of some books I've been writing in recent years and describes what I think is the underlying story, uh, one of the big underlying stories that's going on in our time, which is a war on the West, by the West, from the West itself. There are different forms of anti-Westernism that exist in the world. There's Chinese anti-Westernism, Arab anti-Westernism, Russian anti-Westernism. I'm interested in Western anti-Westernism. That is, the movements uh, within the West, within the mainly English-speaking democracies, but Europe as well, which basically attempt to uh, destroy everything in our own past, uh, ransack our culture, our history, and much more, and basically deplete ourselves of everything that we've inherited, look at it all through a very monomaniacal lens of racism, oppression, slavery, colonialism, and come out with a decision that there's basically nothing good to be said about us. Uh, This is a war on all of the fundamentals of the West, but I can't stress enough, this is specifically waged within the West against the West. And that is, I would suggest, very uncommon. There are movements, doubtless, around the world that replicate this to some extent, but, but none really quite like it. I don't think there's any significant movement within countries in Africa that try to rob African countries of their histories. Uh, I don't think there's significant movements in uh, China or the Far East that would try to pretend these cultures are given nothing to the world. It's a very peculiar form of self, self-hatred, self-haranguing that goes on in the West. And I think it's gone on certainly throughout our entire lifetimes and been going on for decades. But I think it has to be identified if it's going to be pushed back against and indeed fought. Is it that peculiar? Because you could look at several revolutionary movements throughout recent history, from the French Revolution to the Bolsheviks, even to communist China, where, of course, you had the Cultural Revolution, where you saw very similar themes of them attacking their past, attacking their traditions. And you say this is self-hatred. Well, these people who are doing this, they probably wouldn't ascribe these traditions to themselves, if you see what I mean. So therefore, they're not really ha- they're hating themselves, they're hating these dead white men or whatever. So perhaps this isn't, this isn't so peculiar, and it's another revolutionary movement. 
it's not peculiar at the end of civilizations. That's true. Uh, you could say that it's rather commonplace at the end of civilizations. Uh, you're right to draw a link to the Cultural Revolution, Cultural Revolution in China, I'd say the Cultural Revolution in Cambodia as well, which is that it is, yes, an attempt to start again from year zero. By the way, I, I should stress that, I mean, uh, the examples you give, I mean, these, these nevertheless are small revolutionary movements that took over massive societies. One of the striking things about the war on the West is that the revolutionary movements have just run through our societies, uh, run through our institutions. So in a country like Britain, you know, most of our public institutions are polluted by anti-Westernism, polluted by the idea that, for instance, anything that's come from so-called dead white men is to be abjured and thrown away, that anything from our past is bad, anyone from anyone else's past is good, that everything we have in our present is bad, everything everyone else has in their present is good and admirable. So yes, it does have some similarities with revolutionary movements in the past, with the caveat that this is a much bigger than a revolutionary movement in a way, because it's already succeeded in running through our societies so fast, so fast. But it hasn't managed to topple the democratic system. It hasn't led to the murder of thousands or millions of people, as we've seen in those previous terrible examples that I mentioned. So in a way, this is, you know, it's quite slippery and difficult to put your finger on it, which I suppose is why you've written the book. Yeah, I, I don't think it's slippery at all. I, I think that the, where the movement starts is very easy to identify, and I do. I mean, it basically starts at the point at which people believe that, for instance, the Western nations should have some form of revenge enacted against them. That comes up in the post-colonial period, and there are people who are completely open about that in the post-colonial period. You know, you need basically revolution, uh, you need revenge on the West for colonialism. This has become completely explicit in recent years in the movements in America that seem to think that America never addressed the question of slavery and think that it must now have an act of historical vengeance carried out on it because of something that happened 200 years ago, was abolished 200 years ago. And I think that you can see it clearly in what I describe as the so-called anti-racist movements of recent years in particular, which basically believe that, and actually state it as follows, I mean, quote chapter and verse and do in the book, state that the, the, the fact that in the view of the so-called anti-racists, people like Abraham X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo and others, that there has been oppression in the past of non-white minorities, which is, is certainly the case. And nobody would deny it. Racism has been something that has existed in the Western past as it exists in every civilization, every culture in history. It's a very lamentable and appalling human trait. But these people have decided that because racism existed in the past, you must make up for it by being racist in the present against the people perceived to be uh, the people who carried out the racism in the past. So, for instance, Ibram X. Kendi says, the answer to past oppression is present-day oppression. The answer to past injustice is present-day injustice. What does he mean? He means because black people were undoubtedly prejudiced against in the American past, we must be prejudiced against white people in the present in order to kind of even out the scales. As I say, the moment you get into the realm of revenge, is the moment that you see the anti-Westernism very, very clear. That's what I describe in part as a war on white people, which is an insane uh, situation to be in, that anyone would be warring on any racial group because of their racial identities who would recognize that as being abhorrent in every 
every situation other than the one that's most prominent at the moment, which is you can say whatever you like about white people. So, for instance, if you and I were two um, black British commentators and uh, we were talking, I think that if anyone said that's just two black guys, what right do they have to talk? We would say, gosh, that's a very racist thing to say. I would bet that a certain number of responses to the conversation we're even having will be, well, that's just two white guys. As if there's something bad about that, as if there's something bad about being two white guys talking, as if that's sort of unnatural state of affairs and must be stopped. That is a totally commonplace thing today because, as I said, there's one permissible form of racism, and that's a form of racism which is we must have vengeance on the white people because the white people did bad things in the past, unlike everyone else. And uh, so I don't think it is slippery, actually. I think it's very specific. I do chapter and verse in the book, partly because I think people need to know what is being said about, and this can't be stressed enough, majority populations. You know, this is not being said. I mean, it would be insane to try to do this to a minority population. It would be insane and wicked to say to a minority population, you know, you're evil because of the color of your skin and you've never produced anything good and you're bad people today and vengeance must be enacted upon you. That'd be a terrible thing to do to any minority group. What an insane thing to try to do to a majority group. And the only way that people can succeed in actually persuading the majorities to go along with this is if that revolutionary, cultural revolutionary movement actually succeeds in browbeating, terrorizing effectively, cowering the majority populations. And I think that they are, the, the, this uh, particular cultural revolution is proving very successful at the moment in doing that. So that people are terrified of saying what they think, terrified of identifying what's happening in front of their faces for fear of the names that they will be called. And as a result, they shut up, keep their heads down, other than perhaps every few years when they're allowed to a ballot box and they make themselves heard in private. Now, the reason I call it slippery, I suppose, is because there's been much gaslighting in the past of, from the left claiming that the culture wars are merely a figment of the right's imagination and people sort of, I suppose, just denying that this stuff exists. I want to also ask about the outcomes of this revolutionary movement. In your book, you describe many of the destructive elements of what people are doing. So, for example, they're going after statues and monuments and authors and cancelling people and all this stuff. And you describe it as a very destructive movement. It's very easy to destroy something. It takes years, decades, whatever, to build up a, a, a civilization. Do you think these people have a utopia that they're trying to aim for, as we've seen with, let's say, the communists in the 20th century? Or is it merely just permanent revolution, permanent attacking the past? What, where's the end goal? Well, first of all, let me pick up on the point about the culture wars. I find this claim among the most risible claim of my and other critics. They say um, Douglas Murray is engaging in a culture war. No, I'm not. Uh, far from it. I don't want to engage in any kind of culture war. I think it's a ridiculous idea. But if you say that everything in my past, everything in my civilization's past, everything in my culture's past is terrible, and all my predecessors are terrible, and I'm terrible, and then when I raise a peep and say, hang on a minute, you say, oh, no, you're engaging in a culture war. No, sorry. That's, to use that horrible term you just used as well, that's a form of gaslighting. The left plays these ravenous, ravaging culture wars against everything. And then whenever you reply to them, it says, ah, you're just playing a right-wing culture war. No, it is not at all a culture war to identify 
that there is a revolutionary movement that is seeking to destroy everything in the Western past and say that there is nothing good in it and there's nothing good about the Western present and white people are awful. That is not to get in a culture war if you raise a hand and say, no, count me out and here's how. That is, and that's absolutely basic moral hygiene, basic intellectual honesty and decency to say that highly illiterate and ill-informed people who deeply dislike the society and civilizations in question should not be allowed free reign to ignorantly tear up everything that they don't know anything about and then cry whenever anyone says they're not going along with them you know no i mean i think it's it's among the most risible claims that that the radical left in particular makes that it's the right that creates these these, these culture wars it's a left-wing creation which some people on the right and the center and the left rightly object to and should object to and should be allowed to object to without being accused of some frivolous you know conflict uh, as for the utopia yes of course the movements that i critique the anti-western movements i critique in the war in the west are um, absolutely uh, utopian it's just that, like most utopians they have no idea what utopia looks like i mean i just said that one of the most achievable not a utopia because i don't really believe in utopias i think it's a sort of childish dream but a satisfactory state of affairs i would argue is one that we were broadly speaking getting to in recent decades we were had recognized that i think probably we discussed some of this when we last spoke in relation to my previous book the madness of crowds that basically people were agreed that and i, I say this is i think a right and left thing in most countries like britain and america we were pretty much agreed on the idea that somebody with a competency to do something should not be held back from achieving what they could do by dint of any characteristic over which they had no say. So like nobody who was a woman should be stopped from doing things that she can do just because she's a woman. Obviously, nobody who's gay or lesbian should be stopped from doing something just because of their sexual orientation if they're good at it. And likewise, it's ridiculous to stop people doing things or prevent people from achieving what they can achieve simply because of the color of their skin. And I think that was pretty much agreed upon or recognized. And the people who thought otherwise were really at the margins until quite recently. And they were on the margins of the far right, I'd have said. Well, then, reminding us of the wheel of politics that can occur, the far left started to engage in this same game the far right used to engage in, and some parts still do, which is to say, no, your racial characteristics are the most important thing about you. And they will determine whether you're allowed to speak. And again, because of past injustice, we must have present day injustice. If white people were given the microphone in the past, you must give the microphone to black people today. That instead of getting to a situation where we were colorblind, even colorblindness is alleged to be a sign of racism. So that's what they've been doing. Is that's what they've been doing war against is this idea that, that we were actually getting to, which was the dream of Martin Luther King, among others. And in half a century, that dream has been completely inverted. So that today's people who would like to call themselves anti-racist, as I say, actually just engage in race-baiting racism of their own. And I, I suppose, to be fair to them, they think that if they do this for a while, you know, you can cow people in the West and upset them enough, and then we get to equity. But I don't think, we, I don't think what they're dreaming is at all thought through. And I don't think we get there. We certainly don't get there by warring on majority populations or trying to destroy all of the roots of what got us to where we are. I mean, 
the so-called anti-racists now claim that absolutely everything that is what we used to regard as a desirable attainment is racist. I mean, in the social justice movements of America and much more that have now come right into the mainstream, the teaching unions and much more, you have ideas like punctuality is a white concept and is therefore racist. Accuracy is a white concept and therefore racist. Showing your working in STEM subjects is racist and, and therefore it's a product of white people. And even that testing standardized testing is a product of white people and therefore racist. And of course, you'll notice that all of these things actually, among other things, kick away all of the ladders that exist in society for hardworking and accomplished uh, people of any racial background to get on. And so I think that the revolutionary movement of our time, the cultural revolutionary movement of our time, is actually in the name of getting to a utopia that they cannot define, is actually just going to create more and more hell for everybody, which is why it has to be stopped now. Now, we're using very emotive language to describe our opponents, and perhaps that's justified. I mean, the not name particularly. Of the book, it's no, not particularly. Well, I mean, I've, I've been quite, not, I've been quite easy on them actually. Well, let's. Uh, I'm going to ask a very woke question then. In that case, I'm going to play devil's advocate slightly. The the left often misinterpret the right's motivations, and they might say, for example, that you want to starve the poor, or you want you're racist, or you're homophobic, or you you simply hate immigrants, and that's why you're opposed to mass migration. And perhaps there's something going on here where we're ascribing to the left motivations that they don't have. They say that they want equality and diversity and justice and things like this. And perhaps that is all they want. And those things perhaps can be benevolent in some ways. And, you know, by picking the most extreme examples, perhaps we're sort of misinterpreting the entire left's motivations. Well, uh, I mean, it's possible. I agree with you. One should always try to steel man your opponents, not straw man them. And that's why I always choose, wherever I can, the most mainstream examples of this cultural revolution at work. I just gave you the example of the teaching, the most important teaching union in America, the teachers unions in America, incredibly important as they are in Britain. And so what the head of the teaching union says, it, it matters. You know, it's not like I'm just quoting some weird lefty blogger you know when i talk about um, the chapter on reparations uh, i'm not quoting some weird uh, fringe you know guy girl sitting in a basement tapping away on tiktok or something i'm i'm, I'm quoting all of the candidates the democratic party were putting forward for the presidency in 2020 i'm quoting all the main mainstream publications in the u.s I don't need to go to fringe websites. I'm quoting what the New York Times is now saying about the history of America. I'm quoting what the Atlantic magazine is saying about America and putting on its covers. So when they say, for instance, that Americans need to pay reparations for something that happened 200 years ago, I don't need to get fringe voices. They're totally mainstream voices people at the very top of America who are playing with these dangerous, dangerous ideas of hereditary guilt. Again, in the UK, I don't need to quote some wastrel left-wing unread blog site. When it comes to reparations, it's the Labour Party, Her Majesty's Party of Opposition, 
that published under the present leader a long and extraordinarily ignorant attempt to work out what reparations Britain should pay for things that happened hundreds of years ago. These things are very, very mainstream that I'm talking about here. The claim that actually his wealth transfers for historic injustices. Minor members of the royal family can no longer, it seems, travel anywhere without people accosting them and claiming that Her Majesty the Queen needs to apologize for slavery as if Queen Elizabeth II is a notorious slave owner. And that Britain should pay reparations for something that, that we abolished over 200 years ago. This is totally normal now. I mean, any royal visit is marred by that. As I say, the, the party that's that's most likely to form the next government, the opinion polls go, is interested in the reparations game, the game of historic payments for historic wrongs and claims made by people who've never signed anything themselves. I give chapter and verse of, as I say, all the mainstream institutions in Britain, America, the West, government, government institutions, government departments, NGOs, the main charities, the main civil societal organizations. It's just remorseless and limitless, the number of entities that have now engaged in this. And so, yes, and as Mr. Representative, I, I just quote what these people say and what they're demanding. I don't need to exaggerate. They have exaggerated quite enough themselves. I just need to quote them. So I don't need to point out that, for instance, Yale University is a major jewel in the crown of not just American, but Western education. So that when Yale last year hosts a lecturer who gives a speech saying that white people are all psychopaths and that the speaker dreams of shooting them and killing them, I don't need to go to some fringe college in America to get that and quote that. I can quote it from Yale University. I don't need to go to Britain's 110th best performing university to quote the idiocies uh, that I do in my book. I can quote Oxford University and Cambridge University. It's professors at Oxford University who, who have started to try to argue and browbeat their colleagues into agreeing that, for instance, you shouldn't teach musical literacy at one of, again, the jewels of the crown of our, of our educational system, because the Western notation system was come up with by white men. I, you know, I don't need to go, I reiterate, I don't need to go to the fringes for this. Oxford University gives it to me, Yale University gives it to me, the Democratic Party gives it to me, the Labour Party gives it to me. I'm just quoting what these people are doing and saying and joining the dots. One of the reasons that the woke so-called ideology is perhaps very alluring to some is that they claim the moral high ground and, you know, people, they want to be seen as a good person. They don't want to go along with the, the group that's called racist or evil or homophobic or whatever. So perhaps we can break down some of the goals that the wokies or the woke people want and see if they are so moral after all. So let's talk about, for example, diversity, equality, equity, social justice, all of these things. Is diversity actually a admirable goal? No, not at all. Diversity is something that has pros and cons, upsides and downsides. I addressed that in The Strange Death of Europe. It's to say, you know, diversity is our strength. It's as ridiculous as saying just, I don't know, diversity is our main weakness. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a claim about something that has things to be said for it and things to be said against it. The moment at which Western societies decided that diversity was the goal, 
was the moment that they fell for another bit of the anti-Westernism. There's nothing wrong with the way that, you know, our societies have been structured and blaming, nothing intrinsically wrong, blaming us and saying that there's something intrinsically wrong about Western societies or Western peoples is like saying there's something intrinsically wrong about Africa and therefore we must pump millions and millions of white Europeans into Africa to make it a more diverse and therefore successful place. This is, again, you know, nobody, if, if, if diversity were simply the, on its own, unloyed good, then we would be exporting diversity around the world. We'd be forcing Westerners into China. We'd be, you know, trying to do large movements of you know, Japanese people into countries they haven't gone to in large enough numbers and say, no, you need a quota of Japanese diversity and so on. It's, it's an entirely anti-Western movement, this idea that diversity in itself is, is the goal, because it says only if we're diverse are we any good. I, I think that's totally wrong. Uh, it's demonstrably wrong. M most of the things that have been successes in the British and West past did not come about as a result of diversity. There were some things that, that did, definitely. But most of our historic achievements as societies are not to do with being diverse. We were rather undiverse societies until the latter part of the 20th century. So this is only a, a way to try to catch up after the fact with uh, demographic realities in the West. Perhaps one of the strengths of diversity in particular, when it works, is the ability to challenge other people's opinions. So if you have a diversity of views, that could make your own views stronger because there are people pushing back and we're having a debate. However, this isn't something that the left particularly seem to care about. If you look at the differences between Republican and Democrat, let's say professors within various universities, there's, uh, the ratio is, is going much, much uh, further apart and Republicans and Conservatives are becoming a tiny, tiny minority within these institutions and within many professional institutions. And yet, this isn't the greatest, uh, you know, diversity isn't the, the, the thing that we should be aiming for. Why do the left not want intellectual diversity? Well, they, they, yes, exactly. They, they want diversity so long as it comes to their conclusions. So, I mean, that's the point, is that diversity is a sort of means to an end. It's a means to try to force something else on the Western peoples. And uh, I think it contemptible to pretend that diversity is actually the goal. The goal is to change the West and to do so under this lovely terminology of diversity, equity, and, and so on. And again, I mean, it's incredibly all thought through. I've addressed it in a couple of books now, but the, the final stage of this is, is this idea that, uh, yes, we'll welcome all viewpoints apart from the mainstream viewpoint which we will war against. We will welcome all people apart from the majority who we will war against. We will celebrate everything. We will celebrate all indigenous peoples apart from ones that are believed to be of the West. And then it's, you know, you don't have indigenous peoples day for the British. It's, it's this, this very strange use of diversity as a weapon. And what but about the, same, the same thing with equality. Well, I was going to say, I was going to ask actually about equality. You know, it's a similar vein. But recently in, the, in Britain, the, the Conservative Party, the ruling party, they have announced, the, the chairman announced that he would aim for 50% of all MPs to be women. 
and they would use, you know, 50% of all candidates would be women. And they talk about, you know, this is a quality of outcome, you know, at, at its most extreme form. These are the people representing the people in Parliament. So is equality, again, one of those things that we should all be aiming for? Well, it, it, people are so confused about what they actually mean. I mean, I mean, obviously, there's a virtue in having, for instance, certain representative bodies, you know, vaguely resembling the British public. I mean, if, if Parliament were, for instance, 100% male and 100% white, you might think that that was a pre-revolutionary moment. You know, I mean, it would be a, a very ugly thing to see because you think well, that doesn't at all represent the country. I mean, it represents a portion of the country. But so there's a, and, and you might say the same thing with other bodies that actually do rely on public trust. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want a police force that had no ethnic minorities in it, for instance. But equally, uh, everything in the world, everything in our societies, does not have to completely accurately represent the demographic, or otherwise it's uh, unfair and unjust. I mean, you know, in America, the black population is about 13% of the population. Uh, are they underrepresented in certain sectors? Yes. Are they overrepresented in others? Yes. Same thing in Britain. Uh, are there sectors which in which women are underrepresented? Sure. Are there other ones where they're overrepresented? Absolutely. Same thing with ethnic minorities. People talk about, of course, it only ever happens in prestige professions, we should remember. You know, people complain about the number of black actors in Hollywood as if that's the main representation fight of their time because it's so much easier to cast another black actor in a high profile role than it is to address endemic issues in those communities that can lead to and do lead to underachievement for instance there are roles where women you know are underrepresented sure and there are ones as i say where they're overrepresented and you know it's only the prestige professions where anyone cares about that Nobody says, so far as I know, women are massively underrepresented among people who lay the roads, tarmac the roads. There just aren't enough women. It seems to be an almost male workforce, which it is. It's an almost male workforce, and that's why we need to get more women into it. You don't see that because it's not deemed to be a prestige profession. And you might discover that women don't want to do that work. And then what are you going to do? It's the same thing with every institution in the arts in the West at the moment is playing this ridiculous self-abnegating game whereby they obsess with over-representation of black artists and black performers and others. And maybe you just can't get enough black children to take an interest in classical music to get a larger number of players in certain orchestras. Maybe you can, but maybe you can't. And meantime, what if you're obsessing over, as I say, prestige professions and not concentrating on what ordinary people's jobs are and the massive disparities that exist in them across race, age, competency, sex, and more. I mean, it's just, it's these comfortable chattering class conversations that go on where, you know, it's like every, so everyone will be distracted by the casting of the new Doctor Who. As if, if you get Doctor Who casting right, the rest of society falls into place. And I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think it's a silly elite game. And uh, the fact that the Conservative Party, again, I mean, I'm not for either party, I mean, but the idea that the Conservative Party pushes this crap, which they do, 
is just a demonstration once again of the fact I don't need to go to the fringes to find this. It's all in the political center. Well, I can see why you moved to the United States from the, you know, at least there's a debate over there. Let's talk about George Floyd. Now, in your book, you mentioned the, the murder of George Floyd many, many times. Actually, I was surprised how much you mentioned it. And it, it really was an important event. Can you describe the significance of this? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This totemic moment for the left. It was almost like a religious moment, I thought. Yes, it was a moment that people have been waiting for. And the BLM movement had existed for some years, obviously. A misperception of police racism in America had been growing throughout the 2010s. So that, as I show, there was just a wild disparity between what the American public think the situation is in their country and what it actually is. And what I think happened with George Floyd, it was a very important seismic moment. The first thing is that the, the radicals, the, the cultural revolutionaries, decided that the death of George Floyd was not an unbelievably uncommon thing which warranted protests, but something that was representative, first of all, of the American police, secondly, of American society, and thirdly, of the West and white societies as they portrayed them as a whole. So this one incident, which led to the conviction and life imprisonment of the policeman who was found responsible for Floyd's death, uh, this one incident is seen as being the, the lens through which Everything in Western history and the Western present should be interpreted so that in the wake of the death of George Floyd, the British Library, the Globe Theatre, Shakespeare's Globe, the Tate Gallery, the National Trust, Kew Gardens, all decide it's time we carry out a racial audit and, and analyse ourselves for racism. Because everybody was saying that the death of George Floyd demonstrate what well, it wasn't a one-off event it was it was a it was a demonstration of the west and this is flat out wrong and in flat in fact as i say in uh, early in the book because i think it has to be confronted head on there isn't even any evidence that, that, that the death of george floyd was caused by racism i mean this might startle some people to say this but 
there isn't even any evidence. If there were evidence, then at the trial of Derek Chauvin, the prosecution would sure as hell have shown it. They would have shown that Derek Chauvin hated black people and wanted to kill them. One of the reasons why the prosecution in his trial did not try to show that was that they didn't have the evidence. And, and by the way, and I, I furthermore, I, I explain how, you know, there's actually a case extremely similar to the appalling death of George Floyd, which was the equally appalling death of a man called Tony Timper a few years earlier in Texas. And he was a white guy who was killed, throttled, basically, by the by five police. And most people won't have heard of, of Timper. And that's because he's white and because nobody could use this appalling police interaction with, uh, again, an unwell man. Uh, nobody could use that as the, the prism through which to analyze everything in American and then Western society as a whole. In fact, there was so little interest in the Timper killing that it took a local newspaper to get the police body cam footage made public, which took five years. And of the people responsible for that man's that poor man's death, none have been imprisoned, none. Uh, one of the policemen has retired and four are still serving. So as I show, what happened with George Floyd was people used it as the single prison through which to understand everything. And I think you have to say, no, absolutely not. From the origin onwards, this is a totally false and unfair and unfounded analysis of Western society. And as I say, I mention it so many times, not just because it has to be confronted head on, but people have to remember that uh, the death of George Floyd was like the spark on a, a field of kerosene that had already been laid out, laid out. Are you concerned that another event could be used in a similar way to further the left's agenda? Oh, of course. They're desperate for that. They're absolutely desperate for such an event. They'd happily sacrifice anyone so long as they can have that wonderful feeling again that they're about to topple everything, that they can carry out random acts of violence and burn things down and pull down statues and that it's all in the name of history and being on the right side of history. They desperately want that. And it's all laid down because more and more institutions each year fall for this self-hatred, this critique of their societies. It's Fortune 500 companies. It's major corporations in the UK. It's the banks. It's everybody who gives in to this nonsense interpretation that we live in an institutionally racist society and we need to do the work to tackle racism. And that includes, of course, confessing to a range of white pathologies like white fragility and white guilt and white rage and white tears and much more. This is Absolutely. Again, I come back to this. It's an unfair as well as untrue way to try to analyze our societies. Derek Chauvin does not represent American society, doesn't represent the American police. He certainly doesn't represent the British past. And anyone who claims that he does is an entirely hostile actor. And it would be like somebody saying that, I don't know, a much more successful killer like Idi Amin represented all black people. I mean, who would make that claim? It would be outrageous. But it's as outrageous to claim that you can interpret everything in the West, including everything in Western history, through this single lens. Now, of course, your book is called The War on the West. And I just want to analyse quickly what the West actually is. So one of the things I noticed throughout the book is that the, the people that you're quoting talk more about whiteness and white people rather than the West. So they're, they're not actually attacking the West per se in their arguments or in their dialogue or rhetoric. It's more about white people. And I suppose in a sense, you you're or they are conflating the two, but I'm not sure who's doing that. The other thing... Uh, well, so, 
Yeah, everybody is going to. It's yeah. pretty, everything is. Everyone is going to because majority populations in the West have been white. In the sense, we have records. I mean, so trying to divorce white people and the West is, in a way, like trying to divorce. I don't know, um, black people and Africa or. Chinese people in China. I mean, of course, there's a lot of overlap because you're talking about the majority populations, and uh, so of course there's some or a lot of interplay there. But you're right that, that that many of the people I quote are just anti-white racists. But the, the the one of the reasons why it's actually an anti-Western movement is because you consistently see that it's everybody from the Western past, including, by the way, at this point also. Anyone who's black who doesn't fall into lockstep agreement with the radical left cultural revolutionaries' policies is in their sides. It's the it's again it's everything to do with the Western past. And yes, you're right. I mean, it's because the people involved in the Western past were so often that awful demographic that are called dead white men, as if it would be acceptable to talk about dead black men with a similar. Disdain or hatred or contempt, you know, but that's what they do. But of course, there's a there's a conflation of the two, and everyone's going to be involved in that because you can't divorce these two things. And the other interesting thing about the term the West is that again, I think many of the examples that you quote and cite are from Britain, America, Australia, the Anglosphere, and I think there's there's far fewer examples that you talk about from France or Germany or Sweden or Portugal or you know, even Eastern Europe, you could say that that is a sort of Western, you know, nations these days. So is this really impacting the West or is it impacting the Anglosphere? That's a very good question. I, I say, as you know, that it impacts the Anglosphere first and then the West, the rest of the West next. There's, it's a very interesting phenomenon this day. And basically, the most obvious explanation is it's because the English speaking countries are most clearly downhill most visibly downhill, most culturally downhill from American culture. So that when America exports, when America indulges in bad ideas like critical race theory, race vengeance, and much more, it's the English speaking countries that imbibe the same ideas next. You know, it's sort of, it's our academics that start to play with the same crappy ideas very swiftly after Americans do. And the Canadians and the Australians and New Zealanders and so on. And it does come to non-English speaking Western countries after that. And they have their own attitudes towards this. As you know, Stephen, uh, you've reported on in the past. I mean, like President Macron in France, you know, has actually made statements in the past saying we cannot in France import these American culturally divisive issues. And uh, had actually said, you know, we're not going to tear down the French past. Not one statue, not one monument will come down. That is partly because they're trying to keep American culture away, partly because they realize how dangerous it is. But as I show in the war in the West, they haven't managed it completely by any means. You know, I say in the section on enlightenment thinkers who've been brought down in recent years, sometimes quite literally, that, you know, the statue of Voltaire in Paris that kept being attacked and uh, has now disappeared. Voltaire's statue appears to have entered a witness protection program. and No one knows where it is. Uh, so they're not immune to it at all. They simply know that it's very bad for them because they see what's happening in Britain and other countries, and particularly in America. They see what's coming to them. They, they're trying to keep it out. I hope they do manage to keep it out, but I, I wouldn't give them very many years. It's funny as well. I mean, as Brits, we like to blame the French for many things, and perhaps we can blame them for 
the start of this woke movement through their philosophers. Uh, but anyway, yeah. moving on from that. By the way, one, one very quick, one very quick, mo- mo- one very quick thing. Uh, you're completely right, uh, actually, and part of this is because of French theory being exported to America and then spun through an American racial cycle and sent back out into the world. That is one thing. Just one very thing very quickly. I don't like the term woke to describe what I'm describing. W- woke is um, in part frivolous, in part ridiculous, among much more. What I'm describing is a much deeper problem than woke. Woke is a manifestation of it. Give, me, give me a better a word. very deep cultural revolutionary moment. Uh, uh, cultural revolution. Cultural revolution. There cultural we go. I don't, you know, uh, I'm quite easy, relaxed about the language. One of the most interesting places where these culture wars are sort of happening, but they're maybe being won by the right, is in Eastern Europe. And many people in America and in Britain and across Europe are looking towards countries like Hungary and Poland. I was in Poland recently, did some films there, and it's absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure you've been there and spoken to many people as to how they're dealing with these issues. Do you view the Eastern European model as something that America and Britain and other places could should copy and look to and say, well, this is actually how we're meant to deal with this stuff? No, I don't say we should copy them. I mean, every society has its own reasons for coming to the situation it's in. My own observation in Central and Eastern Europe is that countries that had to suffer under communism until 1989, 1990, are slightly more immune to some of the worst excesses of the ideology I describe. If you had to suffer the realities of what Marxism becomes in communism, you're less likely to fall for the more weakling versions that are, you know, social justice, activism, and, and more. So my observation is that these countries are have proved themselves to be slight, they have, they have a slight inoculation. And also, of course, they have uh, less population difference than we now do in Britain, Western Europe, and America. And a lot of this stuff of, you know, the pushing of the diversity, the equity, equality, revenge, social justice, is a result of, as I say, uh, increasingly diverse populations. Uh, so I, I don't say that we that there's a model we just take, but I would like us in a country like Britain to be able to say no more. I, I'd like us to be able to say we're not we're not listening to entirely hostile critics who don't know what they're talking about when they're talking about our country. I'd like to see much more pushback. I'd like to see the ignoramuses taken on instead of being allowed to just lie about the British past. Like, I mean... There's this one where they say things like, you know, you owe money for slavery. And as I wrote recently in one of the papers, you know, we don't owe anything for slavery. We don't. The debt's paid. The debt was paid a long time ago. And if we have people coming again and again at us saying that a debt we paid centuries ago needs to be paid again, instead of people falling for it or or entertaining that, I, I wish people would just say, let me educate you on what this country, Britain, did to abolish the slave trade and how much it cost us in Britain treasure. I'd like to see them do that. I'd like to see them stand up for the the people who lost their lives in the past fighting that horrible trade, you know, and trying to suppress it around the world. I'd like to see them standing up for the, the British servicemen who died trying to stamp out the slave trade for the average British household that paid boring goods throughout the 19th century because we didn't buy from slave markets. You know, I'd like to see people able to do that. I'd like to see us being able to take pride in our past without having to look at the whole thing through this cringing, hostile lens. And to that extent, there is something to learn from parts of Central Eastern Europe, which is, you know, when you have things to be proud of, why not be proud of them? Why have to beat yourself up? Why, why be in this 
weird situation that we seem to be in of being a, as I say at one point in the book, being as a masochist who's forgotten their safe word. I want to look into this issue of pushing back against all of this stuff a bit later on, and I'm really interested in why we have failed to do so. And I can see and I can tell from reading the book how exasperated and maybe even angry you are, I mean, I certainly am, about why there's been such little um, pushback. But let's, let's talk about the, the non-Western countries very briefly before we get on to that. So China, Russia, you've got to interlude on China in the book. Obviously, the West's opponents, the, non, you know, the, the non-Western countries, how are they exploiting these issues that you talk about? Well, they exploit them very well because, of course, because we've given them a great tool to hit us with. You know, if we say we're awful, we're abhorrent, we're racist societies, you know, surprise, surprise, countries like Russia and China, rivals, competitors and enemies, seize on that and throw it back at us. They literally do so in the face of our diplomats. Tony Blinken, American Secretary of State, had it done to him firsthand uh, last year. The American ambassador to the UN had it done to her firsthand on the floor of the UN by the Chinese Communist Party's ambassador to the United Nations. So they're very happy when we do this rubbish. Uh, Russia has been able to get away with all sorts of things in recent years because we in the West seem to have lost our faith in ourselves because we believed that we were such wretched societies. The Chinese Communist Party is very keen to take advantage of, I give examples, very keen to take advantage of Western masochism because they get to say, um, yes, you're bad and awful, and they hope that therefore we won't notice the one million Uyghurs they've got in concentration camps as we talk. It means that we won't spend our time talking about Hong Kong or Taiwan. And they're right in that. They, they, They are correct. When we distract ourselves with our own iniquities and say that we have done things that we can never atone for and therefore should spend our our lives in this futile cycle of impossible to perform atonement, well, it's very convenient for people who want to do bad things in the present because we're still stuck litigating something that happened 250 years ago. Very convenient for China, very convenient for Russia. And of course, China, for example, just look at the 20th century history of Chairman Mao if you want to look at, you know, real crimes from a country compared to, let's say, supposed Western crimes made hundreds of years ago. And this issue of cultural relativism, of comparing different cultures, is one I want to focus on. So they, I talked earlier about the sort of utopian ideas of these people, of the, the sort of activists, the, re- the revolutionaries. And you go into the book and you talk about, well, they, they talk about the Native American cultures and societies as being these sort of lands of milk and honey. Then they work with nature, they're, they work together. They're basically these fantastic organizations of a complete equality and essentially Marxist heavens. How do you view these alternative societies that we should be allegedly aiming towards? Yeah, the, the, um, the great perfect society of the casino holder. It's, it's the manifestation of, as I say, the anti-Westernism, that we go for wisdom everywhere, but where we produce it ourselves. I give examples of these sort of modern left-wing Rousseauians who sort of think that, you know, if you want to find a store of wisdom, you should, you should go to, you know, native uh, Indian, Native American societies. And, you know, there's, there's always something of interest in every culture, every society, of course. But it's like any of these places are, or any of these groups or societies are actually ones that people want to join. I mean, nobody does, even if they could. 
nobody actually like wants to become an Aboriginal Australian. I don't know if they can. I don't think they can, but they would be accepted. But nobody actually tries to to join. All these things are um, versions of what was pointed out about Rousseau in the 18th century. You know, heralded everyone who was non-Western or the native peoples, by the way, which he knew nothing about. I mean, never gone further than Switzerland. But he had all these theories about native peoples and the innocence, the Edenic innocence they lived in. He had these theories partly because he didn't know anything about the place he was going to. But the real reason, of course, was that he was simply trying to find anyone to negative to highlight the negatives of the Paris of his day. And that's what that's what the Native Americans, First Nations, Aboriginals, these tribes and others. This is a, for the ta- one of the tasks, the main task really they perform in the West today for the anti-Westernists. They, the societies you hold up, not because they've got any particular virtues themselves, but because you would like to use them as a counterweight to highlight inadequacies of the West so that Always, these communities are said to be, you know, enormously egalitarian and um, equal, and uh, and and this is to show up, you know, Western capitalism or something. It's always the same game they play. They're really, and by the way, they're not really interested. The people I quote, like like uh, Naomi Klein, they're not really interested in the societies in question. They just want to rape and pillage them for a few, usually rather banal insights, so that they can then claim that, you know. This is a great antidote to the awfulness of Western capitalist free market societies, and that's all it is. So you cite an example in the book about where pushback has been successful, and you talk about the British Library attempting to cancel the poet Ted Hughes. They falsely linked him to the slave trade through this extraordinary series of accusations that they made, which is just absolutely hilarious. If you read the book, you will find out. Uh, And I'm going to quote from the book, actually, and I just want to get your response to my question. So you say the slightest pushback can bring about a reversal. So why does this not happen more often? Why is it that the same language, ideas, assertions, dogmatisms are able to run through everything? And I would say that perhaps one answer to that question is that conservatives, they are less active in these cultural debates. They care less. They just want to live their lives and get on with things. And the left, on the other hand, they are activists. They're highly motivated. And they are, you know, they're a minority of people. If you look throughout history, it's very easy for a minority of people to have a huge impact on society. And there's a few other reasons. I mean, for example, the left may be seen as high status and the right as more low status. And where you have very fashionable people holding left-wing views, then this will lead the underlings of society to, and, and, and the, the, the ideas will be pushed in this way. So can you explain why you think the pushback is failing? I've given you a couple of examples, perhaps, of why. I think you're right. The example I give the Ted Hughes one is, is that his widow came out quite rightly, like an avenging fury and demanded an apology. And the apology was forthcoming quite swiftly. And the British Library promised not to repeat the claim that their incredibly inept researchers had stupidly basically invented. And I thought it was an interesting one because uh, Hughes's widow was obviously just a defender, keeper of his flame and wouldn't allow her late husband to be smeared in this way, quite rightly. And I say, if everyone did that, it would all be a bit better. You know, the Tate Gallery in London has repeatedly defamed artists in the collection who they are as racist, who are not racist. And the Tate is meant to safeguard these works. 
the job of the Tate is to safeguard one of the great national collections. The job of the trustees is to safeguard that. It is not to ineptly go through history and try to identify who is racist according to your modern lights and be wrong about it anyway. So I would like to see people come out of the woodwork every time this happens and just make themselves heard. I think the same thing happens with football teams, cricket teams, uh, any sports, any arts, any cultural institutions which do this rubbish. I'd like to see people just come out and say no and correct them when they're wrong. This isn't the same thing as correcting them when they're not wrong. You know, if somebody says something is true, well, okay, you'll take it on board at an interesting point sometimes, but not when they just come for everything and look at everything in your past through, as I say, the same boring and unfair lens. Uh, you're right about conservatives and activists. And of course, the left encourages activism as a way of life where the right tends to just want to get on with life. Well, as American parents and others have found out in recent years, it doesn't work like that. You know, it comes at you quite fast. And uh, you'll find that the cultural revolutionaries find that occasionally they, tri they trip over a bear. They've tripped over a bear with American parents who are not willing to have their children taught about innate racism and that white babies are racist and much more, which is all, as I say, I give chapter and verse, all being taught. These cultural revolutions, it hasn't worked. American mothers don't like that. I'd like to see British mothers and others also say, say no as well. I'd like to see ordinary people, as it were. It doesn't have to require, you know, only sort of, I know, high status individuals who, you know, very few of whom seem to have any guts these days or any intellectual or moral honesty uh, or historical honesty. We probably can't rely on those people anyway. It requires um, ordinary people, not necessarily in high status positions, to make their things felt. I thought one of the most moving things during the post-George Floyd era was, was when they were trying to pull down almost every statue in the UK, as far as I could see, when these inept, ill-educated revolutionaries were coming for all these different statues and saying, well, this person was guilty of living in the 19th century, so down he comes. And there was a, there was a lady photographed in one of the papers just holding a, a sign saying, British history matters. I thought that that's good. That was very moving and absolutely right. Absolutely, it does. You know, we have our important things too, and you don't get to come for them. I'd like to see more people taking that attitude. I think they can, they should. The facts are on their side, on our side. You don't need to make anything up, unlike the counter revolutionaries. You just have to, uh, sorry, unlike the cultural revolutionaries, you just have to be honest and fair and, and have pride in things you should have pride in. Now, you as a, an author and as a journalist and a, as a personality, I would say, quite enjoys the fight. And you, you can go in there and you can be combative and you want to try and um, fight back against this stuff quite right. I don't particularly to... enjoy it. I, don't, I mean, I have to do it. I don't particularly enjoy it. I have to do it. Okay. Well, maybe maybe task. like was the wrong word. It, you see it as your duty, perhaps, to push back against these things. And I read recently a book by Ed West, and he describes... This, this war on the West as a new religion that's being formed across the Western world. So he views conservatives as basically the pagans in the Roman Empire when Emperor Constantine declared that Christianity was the new religion. And he views us as a sort of dying breed. And the new religion is politics. As Christianity has declined, People have taken up, there's, obviously there's been a huge vacuum and people have taken up politics as their new religion. This has happened less on the right because people have maintained their Christianity generally 
than it has on the left. So what do you think about this argument of perhaps this isn't necessarily a war on the West, this is more of a, a, a complete revolution in, re, in religion, and this is a new religion, and we're simply the pagans and we're a dying breed? Well, first of all, I don't, I don't identify as a pagan, of course. And I don't identify as a dying breed either. I actually think everything I say in the war in the West is agreed upon by majority populations in countries like Britain, countries like America. I'm not on a losing side here. I'm not on a losing side at all. It's true that there is an attempt to impose a new religion. I wrote about that a bit in The Madness of Crowds, uh, where I sort of outlined some of this new religion, Sashmid identity politicking, for instance. Uh, it's true that it's a sort of pseudo-religious movement. It certainly has the attributes of a religion, sort of all the traits of a religion, for sure. I don't feel like I'm on a losing side at all. Uh, I think I'm on the winning side. Uh, I have no doubt about that. The only way the cultural revolutionaries can win is if they absolutely persuade the majorities that they have no right to speak, think, listen, outside of the parameters forced upon them by these revolutionary movements. But, you know, I, I, I don't think it's inevitable they win. I don't think it's inevitable they lose either, by the way. But, you know, I would say, for instance, I mean, by the way, the reception of, of this book seems to me, if I can say so, to be a sign of some hope. It says all sorts of things that are highly popular with all of the right people, the high status figures that you described earlier. I say most of the things that are highly unpopular to these people, and of course they're not going to like that, but the reading public do, the British public do. That's why, as we speak, it's the number one best-selling book in the UK. It's why it's on the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm not saying this to brag or to boast. I'm saying that there is a deep hunger, in my view, and there are lots of people engaged in this. There is a deep hunger for answers to these vengeful movements that are going on our day and attacking us personally. People want to know what the arguments are to make back at them. They want to know what the facts are. They want to know what the responses are. They want to be armed not only with the facts, but with the arguments, one of the things I always try to do in my books, in particular in The War on the West. And as long as people are armed with the right facts and the right arguments, I just don't think there's any way the cultural revolutionaries can win. I don't know about you, but... I'm not spending the rest of my life cringing and being told that I'm guilty of things I never did. Not doing it, not guilty, not guilty, can't persuade me I am. And my society isn't guilty and I'm not guilty because of the color of my skin. And white people aren't guilty and we haven't inherited anything bad and we don't owe anyone anything from the cradle to the grave simply by dint of skin color. Britain doesn't have a terrible history. It has a great history with dark bits in the past. It's a better history than most countries, better history than most societies. America has things to be ashamed of, sure, but every society does. It has more things to be proud of than ashamed of. If, if we reminded ourselves that this is actually a reasonable way to look at ourselves, and it is, I wouldn't give the cultural revolutionaries a, a, a chance. I don't think they'd stand a chance. It's only if we give up on the truths we know that they actually have a chance of winning. Uh, but I'm not a defeatist at all. I'm not in this for, for losing. Well, that's the reason that I mentioned your willingness to push back, I suppose, because I've been reading a lot of people like Ed West and Peter Hitchens, and I would describe them perhaps as doomerisms or doomers, as they, they might call themselves. And maybe they are defeatists in a way. I don't think that they would maybe accept that. But they think that basically the fight is over 
and there's not much that we can do about it. And you've got a very different opinion to that. And it's odd, I think, for, for once... I'd for say, a, among other things, by the way... Yeah. Sorry, yes, sorry, go on. I was just going to say that, for, for once, from a conservative writer, it's interesting that there was... A, I, I sort of noted a tone of optimism throughout your book. Yes. Yes, well, of course. I mean, there's much to be optimistic about because I'm defending a civilization which is terrific and which I happen to love. Why would I be down about that? Why would I be down in defending something so great? Uh, and I think that as for doomerism, no, I think it does exist, um, a very a strong trait. But uh, there's a great risk of it being an entirely self-fulfilling prophecy. As I say, at this stage, it's very, very clear if somebody is going to try to pretend that everything in our past in Britain is bad and that we're bad in the present, I, I don't think I need to listen to them and I don't think they're going to win. And I'm not going to surrender the terrain. And I don't think other people should either. Thank you so much, Douglas, for joining us. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.